Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, November 8th, 2020, we continue our series titled The Ideal, a study in Colossians. Today's sermon, The Ideal Work, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1. Enjoy. If you've got your Bible and it's not open yet, Colossians chapter 3. Now, I just want to let you know that the, the passage we're looking at this morning begins sort of mid-paragraph, which is a little bit unusual for us. Paul had started talking there in verse 18 uh, about marriage first, and then he began to talk about parenting, and it's all relational issues that he begins to talk about. And then when you get to verse 22, he begins to talk about employers and employees. Now, there's only problem here. One little problem is he mentions two words here, bond servants and masters, and both of those are associated with slavery. And so I thought what this morning I would take a moment before we jump too far into the text and look at the context a little bit about slavery, not only in the Roman Empire where they were at in the Lycus Valley, but also within like Judea and Israel, and then what does the scriptures actually say about that, and then maybe we'll get a look at the, what that word bondservant really means there, and how is that different than what we have experienced when we think back on what slavery was in pre-Civil War America. And just to be fair here, let you know that slavery within the Roman Empire and slavery within Judea and Israel were two very different things. The context of slavery within the Roman Empire was huge. I mean, it was just unbelievable when you think the sheer numbers of people that were involved in slavery. Historical numbers would estimate it as, as somewhere in the neighborhood of at least one to two slaves for every single free person within the Roman Empire. That's approximately 60 million slaves. Can you imagine? Most of those were enslaved as a result of conquests of war. One of the things that you did when you were a nation then, because you didn't have massive amounts of, of production of certain things is, is that you would look and see that your neighbors had something that you wanted and so you build your army up and you go and you take it. In the process of doing that, not only would you take what they have, but now you're going to take you know, some of their warriors and some of their smart people, just like happened to Israel you know, when, when the Babylonians came and got them, and you would bring them back to serve as slaves in your nation, and you would also get their families and their children along the way, and then you charge them taxes, and that's how Rome became rich. Rome fought lots and lots of wars. But they also had lots and lots of slave issues and revolts. I mean, there's a reason why that Rome had a garrison of Rome around to keep the peace. If you're old enough, you can probably remember back to a Kirk Douglas movie called Spartacus. You know, where he was, he was one of these guys that got, got captured, and now they're making him a gladiator, but he was still a slave, you know, in that case, and he started this, this slave revolt. Slavery, though, in Rome was really not a racial thing. It was really a conquered thing. Whoever they fought, that's who they enslaved. Now, the Roman Empire, like every other known you know, country in the world at that time, also had something called indentured servants or indentured slaves. It's sort of where we get the term bondservant from. Indentured means it had to do with financial reasons. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, slavery-wise, Judea and Israel were different than Rome. 
Slavery, as we know it, when we think of pre-Civil War America and the slavery that we experienced here in this nation was actually considered a capital offense. Now, if you don't know what that means, that means you die. A capital offense means that they would kill you for doing this. It was punishable by death. So the scriptures here are very clear about the evil that slavery really was. Exodus chapter 21 verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Now that's both sides of slavery. Not only the kidnapping and selling, but the purchase and the possession of people who had been enslaved is condemned here. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul mentions enslavers as being contrary to everything that they taught, everything that they knew to be right and true, not only within the teachings of the scripture, but that they were actually you know, teaching there. An enslaver would be anyone who would make a slave out of someone else. And so there's no biblical justification at all for slavery. Now, that's important because there was a time when the American church pre-Civil War used the color of slave skin as justification for punishment from God. In fact, you ever heard the term the Mark of Cain? The Mark of Cain gets thrown around a lot and basically it comes from Genesis chapter four. In Genesis chapter four, two of the children of Adam and Eve were Cain and Abel, two brothers. And in the process of them you know, presenting an offering to the Lord, Cain you know, hates his brother and he kills him. He kills Abel and God, instead of actually killing him right there in the moment, he puts a mark on him. Now what happened is, is some people have said, well I think that mark was skin color. Well, let me give you three reasons why that's just a foolish thought. Number one is Genesis chapter four never tells us that Cain's skin color was changed at all. Cain's mark, secondly, was for Cain alone. If you look back, you'll find that his ancestors didn't have the mark. He did. He's the one that committed the crime. But it wasn't something on his ancestors. And thirdly, Cain's line actually ended at the flood because none of Noah's son's wives were descendants of Cain. And so there's no biblical justification for the sin that slavery was and is at all. Galatians chapter three verse 28 tells us that in Christ there is no slave or no free. Okay, so that brings us back to Judea and Israel though did have indentured slaves, indentured servants, bond servants, that's the word. Okay, what was that? Well, basically it was like this. Let's say for a second that you somehow encumbered some kind of a debt. Whether you wanted to do that or whether someone else, you know, something happened and, and you uh, inherited some kind of a debt. You couldn't go down to the local lending institution because there was no local lending. There was no banks. There was no way of doing that. So somehow somebody that had money would front you for that. And what you did to do that was you had to indenture yourself to become their servant or slave, whatever word you want to use on that one. You would serve them or someone in your family. Unfortunately, very often families would take one of their children and they would say, look, I've got to stay here and take care of the family. You're going to go work for them for the next this many years. 
That's what a bond servant was. It was a result of a debt being out there and that need to be paid, restitution had to be made, and it was incredibly common. Dr. Wayne Grudem, who, who taught me systematic theology, described it as like joining the military. Once you sign on the dotted line, you are committed and they, you, they own you. If they want to send you off to the worst possible battlefield, you don't have a choice in the matter. Until that commitment is done, you're theirs. Now, it's important we understand the depth of that. You know, people today will say things like, well, I'm a slave to debt. And I guess in some ways, you know, a mortgage today or a second is sort of a low-level form of being a bondservant, but it's not quite what this story is all about. It's not at that level. If you're familiar at all with the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon, which is later on in the New Testament, just a couple more books over, Philemon here had a bondservant named Onesimus. Onesimus runs away and he goes to Rome. Probably a good place for a runaway slave to go hide out because, you know, two out of every three were slaves at that point. Who would recognize, right? But somehow he runs into Paul. Paul leads him to faith. He comes to believe and he decides, you know, through Paul's encouragement to go back and make it right. And so he makes his way back to Philemon, who has also become a believer at this point. And Paul writes to him in Philemon 18 and 19 and says, I'm going to pay his debt. Now what does that tell you about him? He was a bondservant. It tells you at that point that he had a debt that had to be made right. This was incredibly common in those days. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23, even encourages people, do not become a bondservant. Don't put yourself into that spot where you basically are a slave or a servant that you have no choice over your life. So the Bible, I want you to understand, is not silent on, on slavery. So let's shift over here and go back to, for a second to the idea of the employer and the employee because the ethic here that takes place in Colossians chapter three is really clear. That the employee must do everything they can as if they're doing it for Jesus himself and then when it gets to the employer, they must treat their employees not like a thing but like a person of worth as a brother or sister. So let's stop, let's read the passage together and we'll go from there. Colossians 3 verse 22 says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter four, verse one says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, the first thing you're gonna see here coming from verse 22 is our attitude. Our attitude in work is that we are to work with sincerity. 
Again, he starts off here, verse 22, with the word bondservant. It's the Greek word doulos. It means servant by choice or one who owes a debt and is choosing to work or to serve in a way to pay back that debt. Now, I want to be really clear here because I want to make sure you understand that. As a Christian, that's you and me. Whether you know it or not, each of us has a debt that we cannot pay off ourselves. It's impossible to do that. The Bible tells me that by faith, Jesus paid my debt, that he purchased my life with his blood. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says that God gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. Our sins. That he paid the price, that we are indebted to him. You are a bondservant. The only question at this point is, are you a good bondservant? A faithful one or not a good one? Now remember, Paul begins to talk here in verse 18. He starts off with wives, then he goes to husbands, then to kids, and now he's talking about bond servants. And he tells us that we are to work with sincerity. Not, according to verse 22, just when people are watching. And by the way, there's a lot of that. Most of us have, have had the opportunity to either go into a restaurant or a store and we've had people there that have been incredibly helpful and incredibly you know, winsome to deal with and, and very sincere and they've served us or helped us find what we needed to find and it was a great experience. Kayla and I went to a restaurant yesterday and, and it was great. I mean, the people were friendly and they, they were excited and I know, okay, that, maybe that's part of the job but I'll be honest with you, I'd go back there. Because not only did it you know, look good on them to be doing that and, and the attitude that they approached their work, but I mean, they really made the company look good. I mean, that's a good thing. On the other hand, I've also been into places, perhaps you have too, where you go in and you really need help and I, for the life of me, you can't find anybody to help. I mean, and they simply don't want to do anything. And then when you finally do catch somebody, well, that's not really my area, you know, and, and they go, and, and, and in the process, you really, you know, you need some help through this whole thing. And, and it's like, well, I don't know if they really have that. In fact, I just had that, that experience happen to me. I said, I'm looking for this. Oh, we don't carry that. And I said, well, you have it online. I'm looking at it on my phone. Oh, oh, yeah. What they're really telling me is, I, you know, I've got some things I really consider more important than you. That doesn't reflect well on the person. It doesn't reflect well on, on the company. It makes you to the point where you want to go to a different store. You don't want to go there anymore. That shouldn't be us. That should not be true of us as believers. Paul's command here is we are to work here with a genuine heart. Well, what if, what if the job is tough, difficult? Work isn't easy, right? By definition, work is not play. It's work. You know where that started? It all started back in Genesis chapter three when mankind fell into sin that work became much more difficult. It goes with sin. Here's the thing. If you hate your job, and probably most of us have been in one of those situations before where you're doing something, you're going, I really do not want to do this the rest of my life. If you hate your job, I would encourage you, you know what, get trained, 
look around, go get another job, that's totally fine. But honor God in the one you have right now, where you're at. See, the job here is not the issue. The issue here is our attitude. The truth is, is that work is simply a part of life that God gives us to provide a lot of things. I mean, it's because of work, it's because of a job that, you know, that I'm able to, to provide for my family. It's, it's, it's because of work and a job that I have a roof over my head, that I can put food on the table, that we have transportation to get around. I mean, I, not only that, I'm able to you know, come alongside other people and help somebody that's in need, or, or I'm able to help the cause of Christ so the gospel can go out. I mean, God uses work and the workplace is a thing to shape you and I. The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve's first assignment from God was a job. Genesis chapter two, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Isn't that interesting? I mean, so many of us want to run from work. We cannot wait till we get to the place where we don't have to work anymore. And yet the first thing that God does is he shapes the character of human beings is puts them in a work situation. Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses 24 and 25, talk about that, that, that powerful cycle of life that where we eat and we sleep and we work and all that and joy comes through that time when it says this, he says, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? This is a part of how God shapes me and allows me to appreciate things. I go to work and then I'm so thankful I get to go home and be with my family. I mean, I understand the joys of all these things, but you know what happens is if you don't have that, if you're finally, you know, if you're around and you don't have anything to do all day long, we begin to take things for granted in life. And so my attitude ought to be do my job and do it with sincerity. Now there's a second thing here and that is our motivation. Verse 23 tells us that we work for the Lord. Look what he says, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And so verse 23 is telling me that the motivation that should get me up in the morning or the motivation that should carry me through the day is that I'm doing this for Christ. I do it for Jesus. Notice the, the word here that Paul uses here in verse 23, the word heartily. That word means soul. What, what he's saying here is it means that, that we are to do this work out of our souls. Now that, what that tells me is, is that the motivation for my work cannot be, hey listen, I'm getting up and going to work because you know what? I'm gonna make a billion dollars and I'm gonna buy that second home, or I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna cut that deal, or I'm gonna have people telling me, you're the salesperson of the year, and patting me on the back. That is not the motivation that we're supposed to have. The motivation that we're supposed to have in work is something that comes from inside of us. From the soul. From a soul that's redeemed. That's why he says with everything, in verse, in verse 23 here, when Paul says, whatever you do, that particular statement is not lending itself to things that are fun and easy and happy. Hey, whatever you do, if it's really, really fun, 
then do it for the Lord. No, he's talking about the fact that whatever you do, even when you cross the line and it gets a little bit difficult and hard and, and it's, it becomes toil. Now, the question would be is, if you go back to the thing, it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Why? Why do you do it for the Lord? Well, there's two reasons. The first reason is, is, that, is that our work actually becomes a witness. Matthew chapter five, verse 16 says this. Jesus is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount to this huge group of people. He says to them, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They, they see what we do. It's on display. You would think that, well, when will my faith be on display the most? When I come to church? It's probably eight to 12 hours a day when you're out there in the middle of the world. That's when our, our faith is on display. People watch how we react to things that are unfair. They watch how we react to maybe a job that's kind of a dirty job, a thankless job, something that nobody really wants to do. They watch how you and I approach that to see if it will be different. And so it's a place of worship. But the secondly, work also provides a model for other people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 say this, for you yourselves know, know now or know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when, you were with, when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And so it provides a model. Well, think about that. Especially for you parents. I mean, what's the attitude that you have when you go to work that your children actually hear? Oh, I have to go do this. Or is it, you know what, I do this for the Lord. It's probably not the, jo the job that I would choose, but I do it for the Lord. Now, there's a third thing here that you see in verse 24, and that is our reward, that God will make things right. Verse 24 says this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. That is a hugely important statement because bond servants at that time were not typically given an inheritance or a retirement or anything like that. I mean, there was no social security back then. In fact, in Roman culture, many Romans actually believed that when you got to a certain point and you weren't helpful carrying your weight and doing all the things necessary you know, for them that they wanted you to do, they would just throw you out and let you die. It's one of the reasons why Christians actually began to get a good name because they were the people that went out and picked those people up. During that time, they got nothing. You got nothing. The only person that got an inheritance would be the sons or the daughters of the boss or the owner or the employee. And so what is Paul telling us here in the passage? He's telling us that we, the servants of God, the bond servants of the Lord, we get an inheritance because we are, in fact, the sons and daughters of the ultimate boss of God. Now, there's a fourth thing. It's in verses 25 and then 4.1. 
And that is our responsibility is to do the right thing. Let me read verse 25 first. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done and there is no partiality. So this is a a pretty important warning here. Do the right thing. The wrongdoer would be anyone who doesn't fulfill their end of the bargain. For example, let's start with an employee for a minute. If you're an employee and you have this much work that has to get done and you don't get it done, because you've cruised around on the internet for a couple of hours or you chatted it up with somebody over here and you didn't get the work done that was wrong. Or what if you get it done but you do it so fast that the quality is so poor that the next shift had to come in and redo it all over again. That was wrong. or you, you don't represent the company well at all. In other words, people look at you, they see what you've produced, or they see the way you treat them, and people are thinking, I don't know if I even want to go back there again. That was wrong. It's a, you're a wrongdoer. Now let me take it over into the, the realm of the employer. If you're an employer, and you don't pay your employees well enough to live as they should, that's wrong. It's wrong. You need to be fair, just. Doesn't matter, male, female, doesn't matter. You need to be just. That's your role. Forget about what society says. You are to do the right thing before Christ. You need to provide the right equipment. You need to make sure that they're safe. You need to make sure that the environment there, you need to make sure that they have the ability to to take a respite and to go on vacation. And so make sure that all those things are lined up. You do your part, otherwise it would be wrong. And by the way, this works for everybody here because the passage says it's without partiality. Look at chapter four, verse one. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So clearly now the warning has changed over to the employers here to make sure that they're treating their employees well. Justly and fairly to me are sort of self-explanatory. It's do the right thing, do it with you know, equality. In other words, employers, you are not to take advantage of your employees. Now, I realize that in a room like this, there could be many people that would fit within the idea that, well, I'm, I'm an employer. I took all the chances. I built this. Uh, I dreamed it up. I put the late hours, all the work in. Um, I'm the one that puts my money, my name on the line, all those different things like that. They're, for them, it's a job. They go home and never think about it. I think about it all the time, and there's a pit in my stomach you know, because I'm having to, to worry about all these things. Don't I have the right to reward or not reward as I see fit? It's my company. And according to verse one, I would say no because there's a higher boss even than you. Jesus. See, as an employer, that's the one person you've got to go to, ultimately. You've got to go to them and go, Lord, is this what you're asking me to do? Is this okay? See, everybody works for somebody. You know, some people hate work, some people love it. Some people go, you know, they they do go to incredible lengths just to avoid it. Some people work way too much to become workaholics. 
The issue here is how do I approach work? And am I doing my work with sincerity and genuineness like I'm doing this for Christ? Folks, your paycheck may say so-and-so company on it, but the truth is you work for Jesus. It's important that we remember that. It's important that we remember that when we pull into the parking lot where we work, that we don't take off our Christianity like you would take off you know, a pin or something or a necklace and leave it in the car and then go in and go to work. You work for Jesus. Eight to 12 hours a day, your faith is on display. Whatever you do, verse 23 says, do your work heartily from the soul, out of the soul for the Lord because we're his bondservants. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, I pray that our hearts would be right before you, that we would put our best effort in because we do it for you and that we would consider the people that you have entrusted to us as employees, how you want us to deal with them, to treat them, because Lord, we do it for you. We pray that we would do all things out of our souls for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Eight to 12 hours a day, your faith is on display perhaps without you even saying a word because people will see your good works and they'll glorify your Father in heaven if that's what you're doing. Do it heartily. Do it out of the soul, not for the outside things, but because God is at work inside of you. Let the whole world see. God bless you. I love you all. 